0: to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Alison DeAngelis.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda.
0: It's Thursday, November 10th, and we've got a lot to talk about this week.
2: We sure do. STAT Washington correspondent Sarah Overmall joins us to explain how the midterm elections will affect health and medicine and what the intrusion of politics into the pandemic means for the future.
1: We will also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including new CEOs for Biogen and CGen and a pair of biotech collapses.
0: But first, a word from our sponsor.
2: Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry... Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's chief diversity officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change.
3: Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, the need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race, and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit Gene.com slash ask bigger questions to learn more. That's G E N E dot com slash ask bigger questions.
2: So, as you all know, we record this podcast on Thursday mornings. And uh, a few hours ago, I texted Damien, Biogen as a new CEO. <laughs>
0: Throw out the script I and, then we, st- note- and then
2: we started writing
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to note that I've been going light on coffee this week saw all of the messages about all of the news this morning and and made myself a cup of coffee to, <laughs> we I needed the coffee yeah
2: we all we, we all this. needed it today <laughs> so Damien give us a quick rundown of Christopher vbacher the new Biogen CEO
1: that's right well he starts on Monday and and Christopher or Chris vbacher probably familiar to people in large part because of his time running Sanofi, the giant French pharmaceutical company. He was there for four very interesting years. There were highs and lows. It ended in, I think, a pretty embarrassingly public spat between Vibacher and Sanofi's board. Among the issues were his desire to live in the United States rather than in Paris, but also a sort of like metacultural issue that that company had and maybe still has in its desire for its leadership to be French, which Chris is uh, Canadian-German. Anyway, that neither here nor there. After the the Sanofi issue, he kind of retreated at least from the spotlight, but maybe not necessarily from influence, in running a pretty sizable investment fund called Gurnet Point, which was funded by a really wealthy European guy behind the company Serono. And Wiebacher has been he has been serving on boards. He's incredibly well-connected in the sort of Boston biotech community. So his appointment to this job is maybe not a surprise. And he also fits, as we've discussed before, Biogen has largely appointed people with commercial experience, more so than those with the sort of MD, PhD scientific type. Since 1985, only one Biogen CEO, George Skangos, has been a PhD type. The rest have been from the business side of the business, I guess, so to speak. And V. Bacher, who's a CPA, a certified public accountant previously at GlaxoSmithKline, and then of course at Sanofi, is kind of within the Biogen mold.
0: I have to say, I was a little disappointed to see them not go the route of somebody with more of a you know science R&D drug discovery background and this is something that you know Adam and Damien, you guys reported on kind of what was happening behind the scenes with the board in relation to a scientist and you know a former like R&D head who was a front runner tell us about what like what happened with Matima Men and his conversation with Biogen's board in the like weeks leading up to this decision to make Chris CEO, you
2: know, we reported earlier that Biogen had been in talks with Matai Men, uh, who is a, a former J and J scientist, head of uh, R and D there, to become uh, the new CEO of Biogen. You know that that those talks kind of stalled out, uh, partly over control issues, if we heard, and there may be other issues. And I think, and maybe the the you know the appointment of eBacker sort of points to the reason the primary reason that they went with somebody like him who has obviously extensive commercial business experiences you know Biogen uh does have uh, well, well what's what Biogen will have a, a new Alzheimer's treatment to to market eventually next year that is the the drug lecanemab that uh ASI has developed and and will likely get approved next year so you know that may have shifted uh the focus of Biogen's board back to kind of, you know, back to form, back to wanting to have sort of a business CEO. Of course, you know, we have not spoken to Chris Backer yet. Um, we'd love to, and and I'm sure we probably will in the coming week or so just to kind of get um, his perspective on, you know, why he took the job and you know what his strategy is to, you know, to, to lead Biogen and, and where he wants to take the company.
0: Yeah. It seems like the initial, like, knee-jerk reaction from, you know, the biotech industry is this, like, inkling of hope that this will mean more business development and more M&A at Biogen, given that Chris was involved with, obviously, the big Genzyme acquisition. Um, And I I thought it was interesting kind of thinking about Biogen's history with M&A and how the board has... Influence that, and it sounds like that was kind of a sticking point with Matai, the the makeup of the board and their you know strategic changes. What do you guys think um, in terms of you know what Chris's appointment means for like BD at Biogen?
1: I think it's reasonable for people to infer that. You know, I mean, people on Wall Street always infer that something means deals are to come. When a CEO gets fired, it means oh no, deals are to come because they have to replace him. When one gets hired, it goes ah, now they can unleash the flood of deals that were simply um, waiting (laughs) uh, in the wings for for some CEO. But that being said, to your point about the board, I mean, all things with Biogen eventually boil down to what is going on with the board. This has been the case for years. I know we've talked about it on the podcast and written about it. Probably a regrettable. Uh, amount of times but it is a board that has been has had tension i guess is fair to say over the past really 10 years and whether this appointment will alleviate some of that tension whether you know the board truly united behind Vbacher and has kind of a singular vision for the future and has chosen to empower him to actualize that vision in a way that past ceos we understand very well now did not necessarily Feel empowered, or were not necessarily so empowered, really remains to be seen. And and you know, Adam, to your point, I'm curious to hear beyond the the canned quotes in a press release. Curious to hear how Vebacher articulates his plans for the future of this company, and and you know how he articulated them to the board, such to win their support in you know what we understand was a pretty competitive uh, process for choosing an ex CEO of Biogen, because. Biogen, not unlike I don't know storied sports team like a, a Manchester United or New York Knicks or something, there is always a there's always this vibe of like who is going to lead this storied franchise into a better future. There's an acknowledgement that it's troubled. There is a commonly held opinion I think in in biotech circles that Biogen's continued independence, Biogen's existence, has some sort of almost like spiritual importance to the industry at large. So with Chris Vebocker being the new coach of Manchester United or the New York Knicks or however you know, phrase it, there's a lot of interest in like, well, how is he going to write the ship?
2: Yeah. So, two final points on Biogen. One, uh, it makes the JP Morgan conference in San Francisco in January much more interesting because I assume that that Chris Vibacher will be there front and center talking to investors and, and will. Probably help will probably start to outline his vision for Biogen. There uh, also looking at the stock price this morning, it's up uh, a little over two and a half percent in opening trading. So I guess at least uh, at least the initial hot take from investors is that they like they like the appointment of Chris Vebacher.
0: Well, going from one CEO appointment to another, we got we got back to back CEO appointments. Um, Cgen announced that they are bringing in a new CEO, which feels like interesting timing to me, given all of the talk about potential acquisition um, by Merck. But Seagen uh, has announced that they're bringing in David Epstein, who was at Flagship and previously Novartis, another big pharma CEO going into biotech.
2: I was actually writing a short story about Seagen naming the new CEO this morning when the biogen news came out so i i sort of had to cut my my siege the story short to sort of to move quickly transition over to the biogen story like you said allison yeah Segen announced uh new CEO. his name is david epstein he is about a 30 year biopharmaceutical veteran uh was m- probably most well known uh, uh for working at novartis where he he Kind of helped establish and run their oncology unit. And then he uh, eventually became the CEO of their global pharmaceutical business, and then most recently he was at uh, Flagship, pioneering the VC firm that gave birth to Moderna. Probably, you know, this is not his fault, or anything, but like uh, you know, as we have talked on this podcast before, but like this probably signals the end of the speculation and talk about Merck acquiring Seagen, right, Damien?
1: yeah, so people may recall the one of the narratives of the summer was reporting uh, first broken by The Wall Street Journal, I think largely done by The Wall Street Journal and a few other outlets that Merck, the global pharmaceutical company, was considering buying Seagen, which coincided with the departure of Cgen's last CEO. And so, you know, we got stories about, you know, potential Dollar amounts that would would change hands, and and you know Cgen makes cancer drugs that conceivably dovetail with Merck's Keytruda, a very big cancer drug. But just as the summer plotted on, we learned, or it was reported, basically that the two sides could not really come to an agreement as to just how much Cgen would be willing to sell itself for, and those talks appear to have completely stalled. And so yeah, the appointment of Epstein suggests that the powers that be in Cgen, the board particularly, are ready to move on alone. One assumes that Epstein wouldn't sign an agreement and come on board a company that was actively in the process of selling itself.
2: So I'm going to channel a little bit of CNBC here. So, hey, shout out to Meg Terrell. Hope you're doing well. Uh, we miss you. Uh, CGIN stock this morning down uh, almost 7%. Uh, I don't necessarily take that as a, an indictment on uh, David Epstein's appointment, <laughs> but more on what we've spoken to about that this pretty much
1: probably just puts the kibosh on any Merck acquisition. So the third thing in what has been a very newsy Thursday morning was an announcement from EQRX, a company I think we've discussed on this podcast, but which unveiled itself in 2020 with the grand plan of, and the very novel idea, of inventing new drugs and simply charging less for them than pharmaceutical companies tend to do. Today we learned, well, Adam, what did we learn today from EQRX? Well, today was sort of like uh I guess it was one of those press releases that comes out where the company
2: says they've got a strategic update. And when you see the headline, you know, that's bad news. Um, and, and for and for EQRX, I think that that's uh, that's accurate. They're pretty challenging uh, sort of about face. With EQRX, well, like, like you said, Damien, you know, they sort of set out to kind of create this new business model to, to invent drugs or maybe to license drugs that they could then sell at a lower price. And this was in response, obviously, to lots of criticism of the industry for, particularly in cancer drugs of, of pricing things as sort of as high as you possibly can. And, and I think EQRX was trying to sort of do things in a different way. What well, we found out. Uh, today, that that's uh, much more difficult, if not impossible, to do. And so, with their two leading cancer drug candidates, they have now announced that, at least in the United States, that they will uh, they will pursue what they called market based pricing, uh, which everyone has now interpreted to mean uh, big dollar signs for those drugs. Uh, the other the other kind of interesting thing that, that came out today was uh, they have another cancer drug. It's actually a PD-1, a checkpoint inhibitor that they had acquired uh, or licensed from, uh, from a Chinese pharmaceutical company that they had been trying for years now to get that drug uh, approved here in the U.S. And, and that was sort of based on this notion that uh, that companies could take or find Chinese drugs, drugs that had been developed in China tested in China and nowhere else and bring them to the United States and get them approved, file them with the FDA uh, and get them approved. And, And that strategy was sort of borne out a little bit by Richard Passer, who runs the FDA's uh, cancer division, who sort of seemed to open the door to these kinds of Chinese medicines, Chinese cancer drugs, um, getting a relatively quick trip through the FDA and getting approved here. Uh, Last February, we learned that that was not to be. Uh, Eli Lilly tried this with a drug and... um, well, they brought it to an advisory panel at the FDA, and, and Rich, Rich Paster pretty uh, vehemently said that that's not the case. That data that uh, is coming entirely from Chinese based clinical trials is not sufficient to uh, warrant approval in the United States. And so that whole strategy sort of took. I guess people were tapping the brakes on that strategy, and so what we learned today from EQRX is that you know this drug, uh, again, this cancer drug that they have that they were wanting to bring to the United States was that you know based on data um, called in- entirely from Chinese clinical trials. Well, they're not going to do that. They have basically shelved that the development of that drug because you know they just have found themselves blocked here in the United States.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting strategy pivot from this very very big venture with very very big ambitions. And then as you kind of alluded to Adam, we most of what they've been doing over the last 2-3 years has been in licensing products from abroad, you know, drug compounds from abroad. I I I think like we've talked about this in the office and I've talked about it with a bunch of other journalists. We're all still waiting to see, you know, what what is happening like their internal R&D Curious to see over the coming months, like, if we see any substantive shifts in that direction, given what is happening with some of these in-license programs.
1: Finally, this week also brought news of what appears to be the impending, if not definite, end of a pair of biotech companies. Maybe let's start with Phase Medicines. Allison, what happened there?
0: Yeah, Phase Medicines was a company that was incubated, launched by Third Rock Ventures, um, and it was focused on... These membraneless clusters of molecules that are really important in cell functions, called biomolecular condensates. And phase was one of kind of like three big venture-backed startups that came out of the woodwork in 2020 that said, "Hey, we we think that these condensates are going to be a really novel." vehicle for new medicines and new, uh, you know, ways of treating different diseases. And this week, Faze uh, laid off their staff and and started the process of closing up shop. Um, The, you know, the company has been very quiet about what was happening behind the scenes, but Third Rock Medicines has said that the science just didn't progress the way that they were hoping for. So, this is it for phase. They decided to yeah close up the shop. They're laying off about, you know, they've got about 40 employees. Um, and, you know, another great startup venture writes its last chapter.
2: And speaking of unfortunate endings, uh, Clovis Oncology also had some news on that front
1: this week, Damien. That's right. So we learned that Clovis Oncology, whose stock was trading for less than $1, and so perhaps this wasn't that much of a surprise, but that it was basically inevitably heading toward a bankruptcy filing. Their amount of cash is dwindling, their amount of debt is probably insurmountable, and things just are what they are for a company that has really felt the effects, I think, of the biotech downturn. But this is notable mostly because of what Clovis once was. A little less than 10 years ago, they were among the vanguard of relatively small biotech companies developing their own cancer medicines. And there was an ambition, if not an expectation, that based on the management team's previous ability to sell a previous company for a huge amount of money, that Clovis was the next multi-billion dollar takeout option. We can kind of ellipses through the decline, but it involved a data manipulation scandal that was (laughs) (laughs) pretty well covered at the time and didn't exactly paint that same management team um, well in the eyes of the public. And then just a slow collapse based on their, they did win FDA approval for one cancer medicine, but it never really managed to compete with another similar medicine marketed by larger pharmaceutical companies once rumored to be. Uh, you know, considering buying Clovis. And over the past seven years, it has just been a path circling the drain to where now, conceivably in the near future, Clovis oncology will not be a thing that exists anymore.
0: Yeah. Heading into these last few months of 2022, with the markets the way that they are, um, it it feels like we're going to be seeing more stories like Clovis and FaZe. I know uh, Bruce Booth, the partner at Atlas Venture gave the the firms, the VC firms, kind of annual rundown of what's happening in biotech on Monday, and and even he noted um, that the number of restructurings that we're seeing in the the drug industry right now, he said, is at a faster cadence than anything that he's seen in the last two decades. So stay tuned.
2: Yeah, I saw something quip on Twitter, and I I don't know where the this quote comes from but uh said reverse mergers are the new ips
1: A widely predicted red wave of Republican victories in the midterm elections did not quite materialize when voters actually hit the polls this week. But key races and ballot measures across the country had some sweeping implications for health and medicine in the U.S., including access to abortion and federal funding for science.
0: Stat Washington correspondent Sarah Overmull has been covering these votes and the many days it takes to count them. And she joins us to talk about it. Sarah, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you
3: for having me back. So,
2: Sarah, let's start with abortion rights, which were on the ballot in four states on Tuesday. What happened?
3: So actually five states, although one of them was kind of a, a weird one, but I'll get into that one, too, because what essentially happened was a triumph for abortion rights advocates. So Vermont, Michigan, and California voted to enshrine the right to an abortion in their state constitution. And while that was expected in Vermont and California because of the makeup of their voters and them being generally progressive states, uh, Michigan was an important swing state for advocates. And um, as one pointed out to me, it being in the Midwest, where there are a lot of uh, states where there have been limits introduced, it could now be an important safe haven in that area. Then there was also Kentucky, which was trying to do the opposite, where they had a ballot measure that would explicitly deny abortion is a constitutional right. And that was rejected by Kentucky voters who are mostly conservative. So that was a really notable one. That's one where um, the, you know, anti-abortion advocates I spoke to thought they had a pretty good chance there. Although they were, you know, saying like abortion advocates and Democrats have poured money into this race. Um, And then the fifth one, the kind of weird one, was in Montana, where they had uh, voters voting on essentially what's called a Born Alive Act, and it would require doctors to care for uh, a fetus that survived an abortion attempt. It's a very rare circumstance. It's been seen by advocates as, you know, just being used to be divisive. Um, And Montana voters ultimately, it is not quite settled yet. They haven't technically called it, but at this moment that we're speaking, Uh, The no votes on that are 53% and the yeses are 47% with 89% votes in. So if that holds, they also will have rejected that anti-abortion measure.
1: So speaking of things that have not quite yet been called, in Congress, as we speak, it's unclear what the actual partisan balance of power will be in the next Congress. But, you know, you've looked at this before Tuesday and obviously since then. Could you explain a little bit what's at stake when it comes to health and medicine and, and some of the you know, federal scientific initiatives, if, the, if Republicans were to take control of either both the House and the Senate or just one or the other, or just kind of what, what are you looking at as these votes get counted?
3: Yeah, well, first, it's it's wild. I mean, we all expected the House to be called Tuesday night for Republicans. Um, even, you know, Democratic strategists were saying it's just a matter of how many seats they pick up. And we even had a uh, a little pool going in the stat in Boston Globe office, D.C. office, as, as we were watching things go in, each of us predicted when the House would be called. I was the most wrong at 1130 p.m., um, but the latest one was like 6 a.m., and so we all got it wrong. Um, anyway... Regardless of what happens with the House, what we're going to see in both the House and the Senate is an incredibly narrow margin of a majority. And so what that's going to mean for health and science is that Republicans have made it really clear that they want to start probes into the origins of COVID-19, into pandemic spending, into health officials such as Anthony Fauci, but also CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. Uh, Outside of the pandemic, they want to bring in, you know, uh CMS Administrator Chiquita Brooks-LaSure to talk about the implementation of a massive drug pricing reform. So they have a lot of intentions, but with a narrow margin, they might be a little bit more sharply aware of what they can do without Democratic support. It's one thing to have a narrow margin in the Senate where that has already been pretty difficult for Democrats to maneuver and has kind of made a king out of Joe Manchin. But if they have a narrow... Uh, Majority in the house that 's going to mean a lot more mess in terms of you know House lawmakers being jumping sides to say you know even though i 'm a Democrat or a republican here 's what my constituents want, so I think it 's just going to make the agenda a lot more hazy. I will say though, even though i 've just been talking nonstop, um, there are definitely some bipartisan things that I think that they will find ground on, so one thing that um, people from both parties that i 've spoken to uh, will come back to is transparency in hospital pricing and costs um in hospitals and so i think that's one thing where they will be able to come together
0: i mean really we've been jumping all over the country in this conversation but one of the themes in your reporting lately has been the politicization of covid-19 and you outside of covering you know congressional races and ballot measures kind of took a little swing and ended up in Arizona at a NASCAR championship. What's happening on the ground there that you covered? Yeah, so
3: that was remarkable. First of all, it was my first NASCAR race. Um, I have new respect for how fast the cars go and how loud they are. (laughs) Um, But besides that, I mean... I was there ultimately to watch uh, these vaccine tents, these three tents that had been set up in this sprawling like complex for the NASCAR championship, so a hundred thousand people passed through there in one weekend. Um, and these tents were to encourage people to get vaccinated against COVID-19 and the flu. And so most of what they got people in for were boosters. And the people that I spoke to at those tents were already, you know, predisposed to believe in vaccines, to have wanted to get a booster. And they were saying, you know, it was a matter of convenience. They they saw this tent here. They'd been meaning to do it. Why not do it now? Um, there were three total first timers. And I unfortunately wasn't there for the conversations that they had when they were encouraged to get the vaccine. But from what I talked to nurses about, they said that they just sort of, you know, approached them gently, uh, talked to them about, you know, some misconceptions, but also talked to them on their level. You know, these nurses are from that community as well. They, The people who were getting the vaccines didn't feel they were being spoken down to, didn't feel that they were being judged for not having gotten the vaccine before, and then they got it. So three is a small number, but it was just really interesting to see this strategy in practice and see, you know, HHS's strategy of, of meeting people where they are and convincing them through people who are in their community and how that played out.
2: So Sarah, I too have attended NASCAR races in my youth in Atlanta and Talladega, Alabama, of all places. So uh, those cars are loud. When they when they roar by, right?
3: They are. And I saw my first crash in person and that was pretty Ooh. wild. I know. It didn't go badly. Um all the guys were safe, but it's I could see inside the cars and, and just like the contraptions to keep their neck and say, safe and everything. It's I don't know. Adam, I think I'm a NASCAR fan now.
2: Yeah, in my like I said, in my youth, we, we used to camp out in the infield and watch those races. And uh for those who don't know NASCAR, those are uh cars that look like cars on the on the road, they're stock race cars. And they just turn left.
3: <laughs> that was the best part, seeing like a like a Camry that just had a lot of sponsorships on it. I mean, like I'm watching a Camry go fast, like in <laughs> a Mustang, like ordinary cars. But yeah, it was cool.
2: Yeah, so 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 getting back to the uh, the relevant topic at hand, Sarah, you know, I wonder, you know, I was, you know, you guys have done such a great job of covering the election, and I'm sure you're exhausted, but I wonder if you have sort of a, you know, stepping back and have a broader take, particularly on the abortion. Ballot measures and what seems like you know seems like may- maybe a Republican performance in the elections that was probably less than what was expected. I wonder, did the Dobbs decision in the Supreme Court? Do you think that loomed larger than people thought it would?
3: I think so. I mean, that's certainly what Democrats would say about it. I think. But I think the Democrats, sorry, Republicans would quietly admit this themselves. And the reason why I think that is you saw in a lot of campaigns, Republicans who had really hardline stances on abortion before uh, calling for, you know, total bans, calling it as Blake Masters did in Arizona, quote, demonic, um, you know, saying there should be no exceptions. You saw them in real time in these past few months soften their stances. And it's because they started to understand that while there are a lot of people who do believe that abortion shouldn't be broadly available, it's quite different from saying no one should get an abortion. And there's a real spectrum of thought there and even a real spectrum of thought among Republicans. And so when you take these hardline stances, you are going to lose people. So I think Kentucky was a great example of that. It's one thing to enshrine it in the Constitution, but it's almost a more extreme thing to explicitly say this cannot be a right. Uh, So I think that Republicans are taking this as a lesson. They went into this election thinking that the most immediate things of inflation and gas prices would be what people went to the ballot boxes on. And so I think Democrats are pleasantly surprised this week about how it actually turned out.
0: Given how this whole, you know, midterm election has played out, I mean, even though we can't call all of the races right now, it wasn't the red wave that people were expecting when it comes to the rhetoric around health and science, you know, outside of DOPS and abortion access, do you think that we're going to see substantive change in that rhetoric in the coming months based on the outcomes of this election?
3: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think it I think it'll depend on a few things, such as a few races that haven't been called yet. Um like for instance Blake Masters who I mentioned before he's in um a tight race with Mark Kelly in Arizona and that has not been called but um it depends on a, f- a few people getting into office and then people like Senator Rand Paul deciding which chair seat they want so he's been leaning towards uh the government oversight committee versus the help the health committee um although on both he can wield some power over these you know officials and agencies that he's warned he will launch probes into i think it's in some ways this misinformation about science and about covid is tied to misinformation about election fraud and you know January 6th and things like that so it's going to be about which of those people get into office and then if they look backwards or look forwards uh, cuz i think what this says is that voters want them to look forward they don't want them to talk, to talk about these things that have already happened um they want to see what they're going to do for them now and on that front, it would benefit Republicans to have a health care plan about costs, about, you know, out of pocket costs, insurance, things like that. In the past, they haven't always had a very successful one. But I think that's what strategists would want to see from them.
1: Sarah, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It was fun to be back.
1: That does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
1: We'd love to hear from
2: you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you don't like, and whether you have any suggestions for how Chris Vbacher should run Biogen. You can do all that by sending us an email at
1: readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
0: We'll see you next week when we do a special live taping of the Read Out Loud podcast at our annual Stat Summit.